of our God, to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. People are going to say, you're, you're just like everybody else. You're God. Ten. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, oil that you have been exacting from them. And they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And Nehemiah can't let it go quite yet. And I called the priests, and I made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. I guess they did. And praise the Lord. The people did as they had promised. What a text. We started working through this rather pointed text two Sunday nights ago, and the, the point I want to zero in this week really is just in the last two verses. Nehemiah gives some strong words of warning to the people. I mean, he exposes not only their cruelty to one another, which, you know, you might come to expect in difficult circumstances, working side by side, that close, day after day. You might expect some of that, but, but he exposes their lack of respect for God. Their religion is it's talk. It's not manifesting itself. That's, that's the point he's making there. After all that God had done for them, and if you've just picked this up, I mean, we've been in this for nine weeks. He brought them out of captivity, provided the blessing of the king, Ahasuerus, provided them with material for construction, enabled them to get the wall completed to half its height. After all that, they couldn't even live selflessly and peaceably and generously with each other. And Nehemiah said it's demonstrating this lack of trust in God to continue to bless and secure their lives. He had brought them this far. They could trust him. They didn't need to take advantage of each other. We saw the reason for their lack of faith and obedience. Several things pile up. They were encountering difficulty. They were pinched financially. That always adds a great deal of pressure. They were, they were unable to see any way out of the present pressure of their circumstances. They couldn't see any immediate way out of their circumstances. And I wonder how many people that describes. I don't know what I'm going to do. That's where they are. There are different kinds of struggle. There was the trial of external circumstances. They, they had the famine. They were all short of money. Their fields, their livestock weren't producing. There's just the exhaustion of the labor under pressure, the same thing over and over again. So there's a frustration in that that's mounting. Then there's opposition. And so this... This led to this internal spiritual struggle to trust God. 
it led to this battle they were having. These religious Jewish people who have been delivered, they're battling unbelief for the moment. I get it in a way. It's always easier to trust God when, when the sun is shining, when things are going well. It's a lot easier to sing, great is thy faithfulness, when you can just see his visible hand of blessing on all your circumstances. But that's not where these people are. God seemed far away. Things were falling apart. The work was hard. It was frustrating. It was trying. And they were starting to feel the cost in this famine, the cost of their labor in terms of their families, their future, their children, their land, their taxes. It's all piling up. And as is almost always the case, we're a lot like this. We don't mean to be, but when things get really stressed and difficult in our own lives, they start to, well, get frustrated with people. They found the things that they could blame in people. They found things they could fault in other people. They looked at others and felt like maybe they weren't pulling their weight. Where you're working on the wall, it's not going as fast as where I'm working on the wall, and it's always rough feeling unappreciated. How fair is it that, you know, 30% of the people do 70% of the work? And so the relationships, they're starting to fray and get pinched because the circumstances are getting difficult. And these tough times led the people to sin. They started to take advantage of each other. They were charging interest. I'll help you out, but it's going to cost you. They're brothers. They preyed on the desperation of others to lure them into high-interest loans. They made slaves of other people's children to work off debts. I hope you see the difference in emphasis between chapter 4 and chapter 5 in Nehemiah. I know it's been a while. Chapter 4, the people could find the strength to rally against their common enemies who were poking fun and saying, if a fox goes on this wall, it's going to fall over. What you people are doing is useless. So there was all this ridicule, and the people could find strength to rally against common enemies and critics. They could do that as long as they kept their focus on the common enemy they could get along fine with each other. It's, it's when they weren't thinking about their common enemy outside that they started to take advantage of each other on the job. And there's a lesson there. There's a lesson there for all of us. We're great at quoting things like we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. But I'll tell you what happens. Ask the pastoral staff. People come into the office and they're upset with something in the church. It's always somebody with flesh and blood that they're upset about. Always.
The devil delights to take our attention off of himself by pointing out the faults of others. He loves to have the church fighting the wrong enemy altogether. He loves to see the church of Jesus Christ majoring on minors and minoring on majors. There's one thing the devil knows for certain. He knows we won't spend much time or energy fighting an enemy we can't see if he can set us up with dozens of potential enemies we can see. We'd much prefer that. And that's what he did. That's what he did. Now, Nehemiah knows what's, what's going on here. He has spent, remember at the beginning, five months waiting on God, calling on God, praying, fasting, preparing, seeking God. He's not going to miss what the rest of the people are missing. He sees a spiritual problem. He says, the nations aren't going to see anything great in God if we live like this. That's what he says. It's, it's, it's about God. And so he's going to warn them about the coming judgment of God. He's going to take them to the task pretty severely. He's going to tell them, and he's going to tell me, and he's going to tell you. He's going to tell them how to get out of this mess. There are some steps that have never changed. They always work because they're God's steps. That's what we're going to look at, and I'm way into it now, so don't panic when I say point number one. Nehemiah confronts the people with their sin. That's the first thing. It's in verses 9 and 10. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. People don't like to hear that. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. So the first step, Nehemiah gets the people together. The first step is to rehear freshly the voice of God that they've allowed to just become white noise in the background and not the command of a holy God. We do that. We sing the same songs. We read the same book. We gather with the same people. We meet at the same time. And it just kind of goes on and on and on and on. Nothing else is going to work until these people pay attention to God freshly. If other people are guilty as well, if other people have contributed to your hurt, then you just leave that with the Lord. But, but we simply must, for our soul's sake, come to the point where we just accept the blame for our response to whatever circumstances we're finding ourselves in. We're very rarely responsible for all the circumstances. And sure enough, there probably are others who have contributed to the situation you find yourself in. Frequently, that's the case. But if I'm not responsible for all my circumstances, I am responsible for all of my responses. Life isn't what either destroys or enlivens my soul. My response 
in a godly way, that's what makes the difference. Let me try and point this out from a very familiar passage. Luke 15, 13 to 19. You know this story so well. This is one of the most famous stories Jesus ever told. There's a particular part of it that I want to try and crack open tonight. Luke 15, 13. Not many days later, the younger son, so you know where we're at, gathered all that he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, again, this is like Nehemiah's time, a severe famine arose in that country, and and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who set him into his fields to feed pigs. That's a job. And as he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, Treat me as one of your hired servants. And the beautiful part, of course, is this outstretched arms of the father to a son that didn't deserve beans. And I've heard so many people talk about God just accepts everybody and anybody all the time and braces everybody, every sinner of every kind and welcomes them. And almost nobody says the father doesn't chase the son into the far country. You've read the story. The son comes back to the father. The father doesn't run after the son. What happens is, the son, it says in verse 17, here's what happened. Here's what opens the door for everything. The son, it just says he comes to himself. The son reaches a place before the father even sees the father. The first thing in the story that happens, the son goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. This isn't working. Forget for the moment all the other wonderful details, and there are many wonderful truths in this simple story. Just hold on to that one key idea. It's the most important starting point in the whole account. Getting out of a mess has, first of all, to do with yourself, the response. Not anyone else. Even before, even before you return and come to God, the first thing you have to do is you have to, you have to come to yourself. Or why do you need God? As we'll see in the other steps that are going to come in just a couple minutes. There's a lot of them. But right now, I'm just talking about the first step out of a mess. And the very first step doesn't involve anybody else. That's the beauty of it. There's nobody who can stop us from taking this first step. The very first step doesn't involve anyone else. Not ever. If I want to change, if I want to be free, if I want to return, 
I have to deal, first of all, with myself. The Bible name for that, by the way, is repentance. The devil will point out a million different things that are wrong, a million different things you can blame. In fact, here's how you can be sure. Here's how you can know for sure the devil is at work in your life. Here's the sign. He will bring everything else and everyone else but yourself to the center of your thoughts. He will draw your mind to anyone around you, everyone around you. You will see yourself as the victim, never the cause, not in your response. But always remember, whether or not you get yourself out of a mess doesn't depend on anyone else's repentance. I can't change anyone else. It only depends on coming to myself. God, right now, the way I'm feeling, what's going on in my heart and my mind, here's what's wrong now, God. I am. That's where you start. That's where you start. It's me. Others may be involved in different ways, but I'm taking responsibility right now for myself. I'm not going to put up with myself justifying for one more minute. This comes to an end now. You come to yourself. You can see this unfold with Nehemiah and the people. It's in, it's in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5. And he said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that, we may, that they may be sold to us. And look, they were silent. They could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? All of a sudden, the people have been complaining. They've been shouting to each other. They've been complaining to Nehemiah. Nehemiah confronts them. And to their credit, here's what happens. People are silent. There's no more self justifying. There's no more excusing. There's this total change of direction from 5-1, from where the people are crying out in outrage against unfair conditions, economic conditions, famine in the land. Now, quiet. It's always a good sign. We, once in, we used to sing it more, and once in a while we still sing that little song be still and know that I am God. And I often wonder if I really understand it. The stillness isn't just a mystical stillness. Let's, let's all sit and contemplate our belly buttons. It's not that kind of thing. The silence is an honest, unarguing silence before God. It's an accepting silence of anything God wants to say, I'm admitting right now, he's right. It's an honest stillness before God when he speaks. Point number two, these two points are faster. 
So he calls them to re-listen to God all over again. Get your mind off this. Your response, God. Two, Nehemiah calls the people to make full restitution for their actions. It's in 11. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their their houses, the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. So, so don't make long plans about some future time of repentance. The surest way to take the edge off the Spirit's work is to just procrastinate when he tells you what you need to do. And so take this as your pattern. Here's the biblical pattern of repentance. It's from a little man. His name is Zacchaeus. He was short. I'm not sure that all through history, he would be thrilled to know that for all these years, we've been singing about him as a wee little man. He might be short in stature. He's a perfect model for this kind of repentance that Nehemiah is calling for from the people. Here's Zacchaeus, Luke 19.8. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give away to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone anything, I will restore it fourfold. Repentance. Repentance. I have to work at this. Never, I have to never allow myself to repent with just my emotions or repent with just my thoughts or repent with just my tears or repent with just the right song. Repentance isn't just apologizing. You have to kick those things out of your life. Three. Nehemiah calls the people to remember the judgment of God on half-hearted repentance. It's These stern words are in 12 and 13. They're in our Bibles. And then the people said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. That's great. Nehemiah speaks. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. He knows emotions Boy, you, you know, you feel, I've had it happen. You probably have too. There you sit in some meeting, some podcast, some video, some Bible study, and God speaks, and, oh, man, I just, oh, Lord, I hear your voice. I just want to follow you. I want to love you with all my heart. There's no one like you. You are great. And 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 then you you go out and you have lunch and you're with people and then you go home and you sit there and you go, what, there was something I was going to do with God or what was that in me? Those things can just pass when they're left in the realm of the emotions. And so he gets the people in verse 12, called the priests, made them swear to do as they had promised. And then he acts something out in front of them. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house, from his labor, who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And the people said, amen. (laughs) And praise the Lord. The people did as they promised. This is powerful kind of acted out prophetic thing that Nehemiah does. See, this is a series on rebuilding 
God's plan for rebuilding our lives. And sooner or later, as we see in our study of Nehemiah, we, we can become our own worst enemies sometimes in the rebuilding process. God has provisions to enable these people to overcome all the opposition they're going to face. Look at these people. God provided them with building materials, official letters of permission from the king, a mighty deliverer in the person of Cyrus to release them from the oppression of Babylon. God accomplished all this on their behalf, totally by his grace. They didn't deserve any of it. They couldn't earn any of it. So God proved that he's more than able to overcome any external opposition they might face. There's only one obstacle that they're going to have to deal with, and that's themselves. They had to confront, repent, and forsake their own self-centeredness in their responses to their circumstances. That's the reason for Nehemiah's hard-hitting words in these verses. Robes like Nehemiah's had a large fold where many things could be carried, a lot like cargo pants and large pockets that we would have in today's garments. And Nehemiah shakes it out, everything out of this fold, right in front of the people, shook it out violently. And he said, this is what God will do to all of you if you don't repent and keep your word. Pretty strong. Just as he emptied out everything from the fold of his robe till there was nothing left, he says, this would be God's judgment on those who made light of his word and his command. That's just not popular at all. Even thinking about God like that doesn't fit in the modern church mind very well. But it's true that just as surely as God wants to bless those who trust with all their hearts, he works aggressively against those who stand in the way of his will. I, years ago, took this quote from a book called Shattered Dreams by Larry Crabb. I'm, I'm not an enormous Larry Crabb fan, but I liked this. It's a bit of a longer quote. Let me just read it to you. It's on this subject. Our modern Christian culture has weakened our understanding of the holiness of God. We now talk about grace in such a way that changes our view of God from holy to mildly paternal, from justifiably enraged to sometimes strict but always understanding. Very few Christians today see God as the irate judge who violently hates our sin. He's now more flexible, more tolerant, still insistent that we measure up to at least some of his standards, but always gracious even when we don't. I remember talking to a young married man who said, I know I'm wrong to continue this affair, but you're wrong to insist that I end it. God doesn't want me to continue it, but I know he'll forgive me. I sense only judgment from you. God is a God of grace. God means for us to obey his rules, we say, but if we don't, and of course no one does completely, he's pretty understanding about it. That's become our modern view of God's grace. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. It develops when we talk about grace before we first tremble at God's holiness. He came to himself first. 
It develops when we talk about grace before we tremble at God's holiness. We reduce the holy God of passionate purity and wrath to merely a fatherly God with a few standards, and we do it all in the name of grace. We dismiss God's standards by attacking them as leftovers from legalism. God is the God of liberty. We're told to stand fast in the freedom that Christ provides. The Bible still talks, get a concordance. The Bible talks 100 times more about God's holiness than his love. Did you know that? 100 times more. He is a God of love, but you can't use it to cancel out. You can't use it to cancel out his holiness. It's a holy love. Those are some of the genuine steps to get your life out of a mess. It took a little bit too long. You got the notes for all the things that I might have left out. 